4. We'll start in verse 1. We'll go to uh, verse 13. It should be on the screens. If I say anything out of order, yell at me. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Then the devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, I will give you all authority and splendor. It has been given to, to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift, up, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left until an opportune time. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for Scripture. We thank you that even in the pages of Scripture written so long ago, we can still find our own stories and, and, and apply it to our lives. It is living and breathing text, and uh, we thank you for that. And Lord, as we examine seasons, the seasons of our life, the seasons that we find ourselves in, uh, may your Spirit continue to work in this room. Uh, would you teach us today? May we be open to your instruction, and in your name we pray, amen. How many of you enjoy symbolism? Do you know what I mean by symbolism? Yes. Okay, we're going to talk. Anybody else like symbolism? All right. This is one of those passages. We're going to nerd out for a good five minutes, okay? We're going to get nerdy. Uh, Go with it, okay? If you don't like it, check back in a few minutes. This section of scripture is the nerdy section, okay? There is a lot of symbolism happening. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In three of the four Gospels, this story is mentioned. Matthew and Luke have a big, long detail about this. They go into the temptations. Matthew has a little different story. If you're in a class, you'll start arguing over who copied whose work, and they go back if it's called the synoptic problem. And then Mark kind of gives it two or three sentences, and then John doesn't even talk about it. Literally, John was on an island when he was writing his script, when his, his gospel far away from everybody, and the other guys were doing their thing. And so you have different takes on the same story. This story, though, is found in three of the four. It's an important story. It's heavy in symbolism. What's going on is the writers are portraying Jesus, and they're setting him up next to the people of Israel. How many of you know the story of Israel in Exodus? Okay, if you look in your Bibles way at the beginning, the book is Genesis, 50 chapters. And if you, go to, if you get to the end of chapter 50, you see that they, the people of Israel, have escaped the famine of the land because of Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat. They are now in Egypt. They are safe from the famine. God had used him through his experiences in prison, and now he is in charge of all the food. His brothers who sold him off come, and they are now living in Egypt. The nation of Israel has moved to Egypt. They will be there for 432 years, give or take a couple months. 432 years, that's a long time. 
I don't think our nation is 432 years old. We're still pretty young. They're there for 400 years, 32, making bricks. They're slaves, 400 years. Then Moses comes along. Moses one day comes out and, and he sees one of his countrymen being beaten and then he stands up for his buddy. The guy who was be- doing the beating ends up dying. Moses flees the country. For 40 years, goes to the other side of the desert. God calls Moses and says, go back after 40 years. And Horeb calls Moses. Moses goes back to Egypt and he goes to Pharaoh. We've seen the movies, let my people go. And then Pharaoh after some convincing and plagues, lets the people go. The people of Israel stand on the banks of what is known as the Red Sea. As they're standing there, Moses and them are wondering what to do. Then God splits the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea. And then, that is known as the baptism of Moses, the baptism of the people of Israel. And then after that, they go and they assimilate around a mountain called Sinai. And at Sinai, In Exodus, this is where God says, you are my people. You're going to be my priest. You're going to be my my representatives to everybody. Through you, I'm going to take you all through to the promised land. Okay? Hold on to that. So you have 432 years. Moses, baptism, calling. What comes next? 40 years in the desert. Wow, that sucks, right? You have all this good thing happen, and now you're walking around for 40 years in the hot desert. Okay, fast forward to this story. Malachi ends, the last book in the Old Testament, the last prophet. That ends. 432 years later, Jesus comes walking down the banks of the Jordan River, meets his cousin, John the Baptist. He baptized people. That wasn't just a catchy name. John the Baptist says to Jesus, do you wish to be baptized? This is the person whose feet, uh, whose sandals I'm not even fit to untie. Jesus walks into the Jordan River, is baptized. When he comes out of the Jordan River, a voice from the heavens, God, the Father, says, this is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit, in the form of a dove, descends onto Jesus. Jesus is then given a new, his identity is secured. He's given a calling, you are my Son, Much similar, do you see the similarities to what happened in Exodus, right? So you are my people, you are my son. Where does Jesus go after this? 40 days in the desert. Weird? Coincidence? No, this is... This is, this is meaning something. This is the it, people, the, the writers were trying to get our attention. Jesus and Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. The places where uh, Israel failed in the desert to overcome their testing and their temptation, Jesus is going to succeed. Now, Jesus walks into the desert. He's been called. He has a new identity. And he walks into the desert only then to be found being tempted and tested in every way the people of Israel were, okay? He's secure in his identity, and now that identity is being questioned. This whole thing is having to do with our season of waiting. Don't believe me, there's this, we all wait, right? Jesus was called. The question now, why do I have to spend 40 days without eating, Why is it hard now? I've been called, I'm secure, I have everything I want. God called me his own, he's well pleased, and if he's pleased with me, why does life suck right now? To be blunt, why why am I wandering in the desert? Every single one of us will have that season. It's part of life, 
It's vital to your faith. It's, it's, you can't avoid it. Look in Scripture. Every single person that is called by God to do something goes through a season of waiting. Abraham, Genesis 12. I'm going to make you a father of, of a great nation. He's 70 years old. He doesn't have Isaac, the promised child, until he's 90. Moses, Moses, I want you to lead my people to the promised land. He spends 40 years herding sheep on the far side of the desert, this place called Horeb. And if you want to be punny, it was a horrible place. But he goes to there, and then he says, I, God says, I'm taking you back 40 years. Moses was 40 when he left. He's 80 now coming back, only to walk around the desert for another 40 years. And only, he only gets to see the promised land. He doesn't get to go in. God, he had to wait. David, some scholars say he was around 10 or 12 when he was anointed king. He wasn't into his 30s before he took, took the throne. Waiting in scripture is something you see page after page after page. Israel waited 432 years to be taken out of Egypt to be from slavery. And then another 432 years until the Messiah came. Waiting is something we can't avoid. And to think that we can and to think that we can avoid it, all we do is short circuit our faith and we, we try to take matters into our own hands and it never works out. So then... Our temptation is to hurry. In our season of waiting, we want to short, shorten it. We want to hurry through it. But today, I want to look at the th- three of the temptations we'll face. They're the same ones that Jesus faced, only we're not going to call them temptations. Sometimes temptations are, are, you're tempted to do a good thing. If you take the word tempted here into Greek and you go back, it can also be translated, it should be translated, test. This is a test. Satan was testing Jesus on something he already knew. When you take a test in class or when you took a test in class, you had a chance to study, you're familiar with it, you're familiar with the problems, and you're ready. Jesus was being tested on something he already knew. He was being tested on what God said he was. He was being tested about his identity. Every time we go through a season of waiting, the primary thing you're being tested on is who you are in Christ, who God says you are. That's why in every test that we'll see Satan throw at Jesus, it's always the question coming back to who he is. So the first test that we see is the test to settle for less. The second one is the test to serve ourselves. And the third one is the test to speed the process. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. Uh, Luke 4, verse 1. We'll go back through this. I think we're done being nerdy, okay? All right, I tried to go faster. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil and ate nothing for those days. And at the end of them he was hungry, and hangry probably. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. There's a paradox here. Jesus was led into this season of waiting, this difficult season by the Holy Spirit himself, meaning that he was being led, he was attuned, he was paying attention, and this was something that God had for him. He was being told to come. He was led there by the Spirit. It's hard to understand, but it's technically Jesus was doing everything right, and he finds himself in this season of of testing. The Spirit led him into the wilderness, into the desert, and he's out there not eating. I can't go six hours. 
He goes for 40 days. It doesn't matter who you are. 40 days without food will leave you quite empty. It's a long time to go. And so Jesus is being led to this difficult time. God is leading him to a difficult time. Sometimes we are led to difficult times and God's okay with it. We understand that? We tend as Christians to be shocked when we have a hard time. Uh, We've made up this scripture, and it's not in there, that God won't give you more than you can handle. It's not there. Uh, He'll give you more than you can handle in order that you will have the faith to test and to overcome it. He'll give you more than you can handle. He'll put you in a hard season. It's not because he's mad. It's not because he's angry. It's not because he's a sick guy and likes to see you fall down. No, it's a growth time. I do it with my son when it's time for him to learn to walk. I let him walk. I let him fall. He learns from it. God will give you more than you can handle. God led him into this time so that he can learn something about God himself. Can you see why this would lead someone to doubt, though? You've been, you've been given this security, you've been given this identity, and the question comes up, if I'm God's anointed, why am I having this problem? What did I do wrong? Why am I here? For 40 days, imagine thinking that. Now, I, I tend to agree that, that Satan was tempting Jesus because the possibility was there that Jesus might give in, but Jesus didn't. And so Satan comes to him, the devil, and he uses that two-letter word that has so much doubt packed into it. If, if you are the Son of God, if that is true of who you are, if your identity is this, then take that stone and make sourdough bread with it. What could be the problem with that? You're hungry. Everyone likes a good sourdough. Go ahead. Make some bread. But what's Jesus do? Does he go, yeah, you know what? You're right. I've been out here 40 days. What's the problem with making bread? What's the problem with the basic food necessity of people needing food to live? We're all wired up. We need to eat. So what's wrong with this? And later on, Jesus will even answer this question. The people will come to him. He'll feed 5,000 people bread and fish. And that's just counting the men. There's probably more. He feeds them. And there's nothing wrong with being hungry. There's nothing wrong with serving a good meal. He goes to people's meals all the time through the Gospels. And then you see it later. Uh, he's, his disciples are yelled at because they picked the grain on the Sabbath. And David goes, well, King, or Jesus says, well, King David did the same thing. What's the big deal? There's nothing wrong with being hungry. There's nothing wrong with eating. But does Jesus go that way? No. See, what happens when we get in the season of waiting? We start to question things. And then the question comes, and the question, we start to argue with it. And if you're like me, when the testing happens, and if I start to argue with it, I'm not trying to argue myself out of it. I'm trying to argue myself into it. I'm trying to justify it. Well, the Bible says this, but does it really say that? I mean, it could be translated this way, it could be translated this way, it could be translated that way. Is the context right? And we start justifying it. We start playing with it long enough in order that we get comfortable with the test. And then we start to justify our doubts. We start to justify the testing, and then we fail the test. Jesus doesn't play it that way. When he's tested, the first thing Jesus does is he quotes a scripture right back. It's not, huh, good point. It's, nope. 
You should not live on bread alone, which is another symbolic thing. This whole passage is dealing with symbolism. And so here you have Jesus. He's, he's being tempted to settle for less. This is the temptation. What evil can come out of making toast? The devil says to him, if you're the son of God, Jesus answers, man should not live on bread alone. He quotes seven words from a larger book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's the fourth book of the Torah. The writers only write those seven words. Here's why. All they needed to know was those seven words and the people who they grew up with the story, they would have memorized it. They would have known exactly what they're quoting. You should not live on bread alone. If you were original hearer of this, you would have gone, oh, that's Deuteronomy. That's, that's Deuteronomy chapter eight. They didn't have chapters, but that's this story in Deuteronomy. So they would have caught on to it. Here's what Deuteronomy eight says. Be careful this is in verse 1, to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord, your, the Lord promised on an, as an oath to your ancestors. Deuteronomy is Moses in his last words to his, the people of Israel, the people he'd been leading for 40 years. This is his goodbye letter, and so he's giving them reminders. And he says, you're going to take this land, remember, follow every command. And then verse 2, remember how the Lord, your God, led you all the way into the wilderness for these 40 years. Does that sound familiar yet? To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. There's Jesus' quote. But on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you see the similarities there? The people of Israel were being tested while in the wilderness to settle for their own way out. They're waiting. They're wandering. They're being tempted to settle for less. And Moses is reminding them, look, you're taking the land. Remember that God led you here. Don't settle for anyone else's way out or way through this than the way God has brought you in and God will bring you out. The temptation to settle for less. And then, as a reminder, the last part of this section ends in in verse four. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. I wonder, my, my brain tends to ask weird questions. The people of Israel, did they know that they didn't need clothes for 40 years? Did they know that in one translation, the feet did not swell, means that they didn't need new sandals either? They were walking for 40 years in the same pair of new balances they started with, and they never knew that, it was, that they were going out. They never wore out. I wonder if they caught on to that, or if Moses had to remind them, hey, have you noticed the person who led you in here is the person who's been sustaining you, even to the point that you haven't had to go shopping and you still have the same shoes? Don't settle for someone else's provision. God's brought you into the season of waiting. He will lead you through the season of waiting. And everything that you need during the season of waiting will be given to you when you need it. This is what Jesus says. This is the temptation to settle. And Jesus says, don't, don't fall for it. Or don't, don't fall for it, Moses says to the people. And Jesus replies the same thing back to Satan. Man should not live on bread alone. God, verse 1, led him into the, de- into the wilderness. Moses, God led you. God will lead you through it. 
His promise is sure. And what we learn from Moses, what we learn from Jesus, is that during this time of waiting, you are being prepared. You are not being forgotten. God is teaching them things about themselves in the desert. Jesus is learning things that he still has to learn about himself in the desert. He is being prepared for his ministry to come. You're not being forgotten. In a season of waiting, and I've been there for many years, a season of waiting, it is so easy to think that you've been left on the shelf. Kind of like when you're in the waiting room with the doctors. You you go into that smaller waiting room, you sit on the tissue paper, and you wait. And you wait for a long time. And there's some times where you're wondering if you should, like, throw some things, knock everything over. Jerry Seinfeld suggests licking all the tongue dispressors and, and putting them back. And it seems like you're there and you're waiting and you're waiting. And sometimes, depending on how busy the doctor is, it feels like you're forgotten. In the season of waiting with that God has us in, the season that's unavoidable, you're not forgotten. You're being prepared. God sees you. You're being prepared for something. You're being prepared for the next season that you have in life. You are being prepared. You are not being forgotten. And in your preparation, we need not to settle for something lesser than what God has for you. That's the first test. The test to settle for less. The second one, the test that we all come across, is the test to serve ourselves. If you look in Luke 4 again, the devil had led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone you want, anyone I want, if you worship me. Notice again what Jesus' response is. He doesn't argue with Jesus and go, or doesn't argue with the devil and go, nah, that's not yours. He doesn't even engage in the argument. This test that, that Satan's giving him now is a test about timing. It's the test, it's the, it's the one that when you're going through a hard time, you try and see your own easy way through it. He's saying, look, this is going to get hard. You've been out here for 40 days. Many scholars think that this happened at the end of the, of, the, of the 40 days out there. He's the weakest point. And he says, look, you can be done with this. All you have to do is say, you worship me, say uncle, and I'll give it all to you. you this, this is it. This is all you have. The question that's being asked is if Jesus was to become sovereign over all of the world, which is what Gabriel promised Mary back in the beginning of Luke, then why not fall for this one and take care of it all in one easy stride? This is what I'm supposed to do. This is where I'm going. Why not take care of it all right now? And uh, Jesus' response, again, doesn't argue, doesn't rationalize, doesn't try and justify it. He says, Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. Anyone want to take a guess where this comes from? Deuteronomy. You have a Malibu shirt on, that's why. And again, it's Deuteronomy, but let's look at the context again. It's, the, it's just a few words from a larger book. In verse 13, chapter 6. Fear the Lord and serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. And here's the part. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For the Lord your God who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. That's pretty clear. (laughs) He will destroy you from the face of the land. What's Moses getting at? How many of you have ever been in a season of waiting, and I've been there, and I'm just seeing if anyone's with me, the easiest thing to do is when you're sitting there waiting, so you're like this, 
the easiest thing to do is go, what's everybody else doing? How, how come they're ahead of me? What did they do to get three places, three spots in line in front of me, and I'm still back here in the back? What's, what's going on? When you're waiting, it is so easy to compare. And then you start thinking, what did I do wrong? When we were going through, we, Carrie and I were married almost 10 years ago. And the first like five years, we were trying to figure out where God is leading us. And, and we'll sprinkle this story, our story into this. And, and we were looking around. We knew that there was a job change and possibly a location change. We were in Southern California. We didn't know where we were going. And I started meeting with people of like, okay, this person, and I was doing video and graphics, and I was like, this person is, is way far ahead in what I was doing in, in my field. I'm going to go meet with them because they've made it. And I'm going to see what they did and how they got there. And so I go, I'd buy coffee or lunch. I'd go sit with a designer or somebody, and we'd start, start talking to them. Oh, so they did this, 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 and this. Therefore, I'm comparing my story with them. In order for me to get to where they are, I have to do this, 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 and this. And when I was single and looking to, for, for marriage, I would sit with married people and go, so where'd you meet? Are there still fish in the pond? Or is it soaked up? What are we doing here? And start asking questions. How did you get here? And, and can I still do that? Or, or, and if, meaning, if I pull the right levers in the right order, enter in the right code, I'll find everything I'm looking for, and I'm comparing myself to them, and what I'm doing is I'm putting these other people's experience ahead of me, and I'm trying to become like them instead of me trying to become like what God wants me to. The temptation we have to compare will rob us of our joy, but in God's waiting room, that's all we're tempted to do is compare and compare and compare. We think that if we approach life the right way, we pull the right levers in the right sequence, we will simply fast forward the process. It's funny as if you look in Scripture, living, breathing document, we find ourselves in it all the time. There's people who tried the same thing and it never worked. Abraham was promised at age 70 that he's going to have a son, he's going to be the father of a great nation. He's 70, it's not happening. His wife, Sarah, says, Hey, I have an idea. Take Hagar, my maidservant, sleep with her, have a baby. They do. It's Ishmael. Things didn't go well there. He tried to pull his own levers to make his own thing happen, and he has this, and it wasn't what God wanted. He tried to fast forward the process. It didn't work out well. There's other examples of this. There's, uh, there's Aaron and the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up there. He's talking with God. God invited the people up, but they were too afraid to go up there. And so Moses is up there by himself, and the people are down in the valley below watching. There's thunder, there's lightning, they're afraid. God says, don't touch the mountain. Things won't go well for you if you touch the mountain. Stay back. And so they're back, and then they start getting impatient. Moses has been gone too long. He's probably dead. Well, we should make our own God. It's only been a couple days. Maybe we should make our own God. Quick, collect all the gold. Let's make, it, let's make a calf. Let's worship this. And so what happened? They started thinking, well, we'll do it our own way. We'll pull our own levers. We'll make our own God since this God abandoned us out here in the desert to die. They're waiting. And they got tired of it. They started comparing. 
And then you see this guy named Saul, the first king of Israel. He's going into battle. This is in 1 Samuel 13, verse 8. Saul didn't want to wait for Samuel to come do the sacrifice. It was specifically said, Saul, don't do the sacrifice. Wait for Samuel. Saul got tired. He got scared. The Philistines were starting, or the Amalekites were starting to gather over here. He didn't know what to do, so he, he says, you know what? Samuel's late. It's been seven days. It's seven days and three hours. I'm going to do it. He brings the sheep. He does the sacrifice. Right then, Samuel comes up, and Samuel's looking at Saul, and in my translation, he goes, dude, what'd you do? I was just a little bit late. There's traffic. What's what, Saul? And the exact words are, Saul, I can still hear the sheep. Why did you do this? You thought you'd take it into your own hands. What happened to Saul that day is he lost the kingdom. That day is the time, and the scripture says, that, he, that the Spirit of God left him and went on to David. He tried to do it in his own hands. When things don't go to our own timeline, when the waiting gets hard, what we do is we rush, we look around, we compare, we panic, we worry, we doubt, and then we try to move on our own terms. We try and catch up to other people around us. We compare And comparison is what steals your hope. Comparison is what steals your joy. Micah 7 says it this way. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for my Savior, my God. He will hear me. That's what we're waiting for. That's what our hope is. Our hope comes in God, the Savior. Our hope and our joy comes from not comparing ourselves to what other people are doing, but what God is doing around us. Waiting doesn't mean you've done something wrong. Waiting doesn't mean you've gone out of order. Sometimes we're brought to a season of waiting. Sometimes it's forced on you. Sometimes it's the waiting's done when the clock, when the season, when the year, when that ends. Sometimes the waiting's amount of patience. Sometimes waiting causes more grief. Sometimes we grieve when we're waiting. But every one of us is waiting, and we do so. Our hope needs to be in, in the Savior not in our own abilities, not in what we can do to circumvent the process, to serve ourselves. The last test that Jesus comes to is the test to speed the process. In verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said this, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. If Jesus, every time he was met with a test, came back with scripture, Satan is trying to do like a new strategy. He goes, okay, you're going to use scripture? So will I. Here's what this says. And he quotes Psalm 91. Psalm 91, uh, historically, culturally, was written to be something that was looking forward to the Messiah. He says this, so if you're the Messiah, I'm going to take you up, and the the Talmud talks about this. The Talmud is kind of like the Pharisees' commentary on the Scriptures. In Psalm 91, the Talmud Pharisees thought that this is the place where the Messiah would descend from heaven onto this part of the temple. And so there's some imagery, more symbolism, because symbolism is the best. And, And he's saying, look, we're going to take you to the place where everyone is expecting you to be when you show up. The Messiah will come and stand on this part of the temple. It was the highest point. It was kind of like a, a, a dead man's plank, you know, like when you walk the plank. Uh, it was something, and every morning, 
the, the priests would go out to this part of the temple and would blow a shafar to call everyone to worship. Everyone would look and say, it's time to go into the temple. And so Satan has Jesus standing here and says, jump off. And if he did, it'd be 450 feet down to the bottom and it would, he would end in the Valley of Kidron. This is where he would land if he would jump off. The whole thing here is, look, Jesus, we can get past all of this suffering that's going to come your way. All you have to do is do exactly what the scripture says. God's not going to let you fail, is he? You're the only hope. You're the Messiah. Jump off. Psalm 91 says this. You're not even going to stub your toe. The angels are going to catch you, maybe halfway down, or if they want to make everyone wait, they'll wait till you're right above the ground. But they're, they're going to catch you, and everyone's going to look and go, that's the Messiah. And you know what? You're not going to have to go to the cross. You're not going to have to get beaten. You can, you can, force, you can force God's hand and fast forward all of this. What's Jesus say in response to this? He comes back and says, it is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't test the Lord your God. Jesus is faced with the test that we all have, forcing God's hand instead of trusting it. Trusting God doesn't mean that we act stupidly in order to force God's hand into doing something spectacular in order to rescue us. Jesus displays many of God's power through him and his healings and his miracles that are to come and how he restores others. Jesus' jumping from the pinnacle of the temple would have pushed God to rescue him. Yes, people would have believed him. Yes, people would have become the Messiah. People would say that he's the Messiah, but he would, have, he would have passed the test but failed the project. People would have believed, but it wouldn't have worked out. He would have failed in the mission. And in doing so, in Jesus' quotes, don't put the Lord your God to the test, everyone knows where he's quoting from now, right? Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter 6 this time, he says this, Moses says, do not put the Lord your God to the test like you did in Massah. Be sure to keep the man of the Lord your God in all the stipulations and decrees that he's given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and, you'll, and, with you, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord has promised to your ancestors, thrusting all your enemies out before you, as the Lord said. Moses is talking about this time. It's right after they get into the desert and then they're out of water because the desert, it's a desert because there's no water. And they start, the people of Israel start complaining. Complaining is what they did best. And they start complaining in Exodus 17. We don't have water, Moses. Have you, and this is the line that's always brought up, have you brought us all the way out here to die? Wasn't there enough graves in Egypt that we could have been buried there? Why did we come out to the desert? And so they're complaining And Moses goes to God and says, they're complaining again. What do you want me to do? The people of Israel said, you know what? We're going to go back to Egypt. They have plenty of water there. And then they say, they have meat pots. Who wouldn't want a good meat pot? That sounds delicious. And so they have a meat pot. And they said, this is what it was like back then. Why can't we go back to the meat pot? Why can't we go back to where there's more water, and the good circumstances. And in all they're doing this is like, God, if you've called us to this place, and this is what you have for us, we don't have any water, hurry up and get us to the promised land or we're going to go back to Egypt. 
And God says, Moses, grab your staff, the one that you turned the water into blood, the one you used uh, when I gave you back in Horeb, the one that you turned to a snake. Take that staff, go to the rock, touch the rock, water is going to come out. And then after this, he says, don't put God to the test. Hey, we did this once. Don't test me. Don't try and force my hand. Don't, make, don't do something stupid in order to make me do something spectacular. And that's the temptation that we have in waiting. Carrie and I were sitting there, and I, I applied, and she applied for jobs, and I got up to 36 no's for jobs, 36 of them. It was awesome. I'm still waiting to hear from the 37th. Uh, the 38th took. And so 36 no's. And every time, once we get to like 15 or 16, they all start sounding the same. And there was this, uh, there was one time where we knew that we were leaving California, because why wouldn't you? And we were leaving there, and we didn't know where we were going to go, and so we had the thought, let's just box everything up and go somewhere. God's called us, that's sure, we've had plenty of people tell us, we've had people we don't know confirm, pray over, prophesy, we've had it all, Right? We're just waiting now for it to take place. So why don't we just box it up and let's pick a place on the map that doesn't have end in New Mexico and go somewhere. Let's just go. Because, you know, if we're called, uh, why wouldn't God just use it, right? Does that, it sounds like a good idea, but do you see the problem with it? If we go... Say we move to Austin because Austin has great barbecue and we move to Austin, we're going to be in the very same boat in Austin as we were in California. We were just hoping that we would force God's hand to do something. In your waiting, the temptation, the test that you're going to get is to force God's hand, to make him act. And you're going to start relying on your own strength instead of waiting for his. And the test that we have is don't do it. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't force him to move and move somewhere and wait for him to fix it. If you're called, you'll be placed. And all of you are called. The temptation we have is to fast forward it, but the reality is we need to wait well. When you wait for God's answer, when you wait for God to move instead of trying to force his hand, things go a lot better. It happens in scripture again. Joshua was ready to lead. Moses was in charge. Joshua didn't lead. He didn't try and take the reins for Moses. He waited. He waited for Moses to pass. And he waited for God to anoint him. Later you see David. David's on the run. He's been anointed, right? He's, his is it. He, he's, he's the king, but there's this guy Saul on the throne. And he can't do anything until Saul's gone. And there's this point where Saul's trying to kill David. And David's hiding in a cave. And Saul comes into the cave to use the cave's facilities, if you know what I mean. And so David's hiding, and he has the chance. Even his, his, his friend soldiers say, hey, why don't you kill Saul? He's right there. Do it. And David goes, No. That would be forcing God's hand. Instead, he lets Saul escape alive and then goes out and says to Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Later, Absalom, David's own son, comes and he takes over the kingdom, leads a rebellion. David has the same chance, wipe out Absalom. David goes, no, this is God's anointed right now. I must wait. And he waited. 
Our test in waiting is to run to anything, anyone, or any place that will make the waiting go away. However, the challenge that we need to do is instead of running, we need to rest. In our waiting, we need not to worry. And in our hurry, we need to run towards someone instead of anything. One of the things that was said over Carrie and I was during this time when we were tempted just to run anywhere is don't run away from something, run to something. Run to what God wants for you. Don't run away from your situation. And in our, in our, test, in our test to wait, our very, the instinct we have is to get out, but sometimes God's telling you to stay put and watch and wait. Judah has this song that comes on his iPad and it, it's, it's kind of catchy after you've listened to it 14 times and it's in your head for life. Uh, we used to sing it at camp. It's the lion hunt song. Have we heard it? I'm going on a lion hunt. Yes! This is why 11's better. Don't tell the nine. Uh, and then they say, I'm going to catch a big one. Yes. I'm not scared. I'm not scared. And then they get to this obstacle. And they go, oh, no, it's mud. Can't go over it. You can't go under it. Can't go around it. Got to go through it. And then they get through. Then you do the, Judah goes, and he does those motions to it. And then you get to the next one. Going on a lion hunt. I'm not scared. Oh, no, there's sticks. Can't go over it. Can't go under them. Got to go. Can't, you got to go through them. And then there's trees, and then there's a gate, and then there's a river. And then finally you get to the cave, and the lion scares you, and you run through it all. But <laughs> eventually the illustration breaks down, but the point is this. is annoying. <laughs> as annoying as that song is, the first part of it until the very end teaches us a valuable lesson. We're all waiting. We're waiting for something whether you're waiting for a spouse, whether you're waiting for a job, whether you're waiting for a child, whether you're waiting to retire, whether you're waiting for your next career, whether you're waiting for fill in the blank. Every single one of us is waiting for something. And the temptation is to, when we get to that obstacle, to go around it, over it, under it, any way but through it. And the season of waiting, sometimes we just have to wait. And when we wait, it's at that point where we are met with the very Spirit of God to sustain us and to hold us and to bring bring us through it. The one who led you into the waiting is going to be the only one who can lead you out of the waiting. It happened in Egypt. It happened in the wilderness with the Israelites. It happened with Jesus. The Lord led him in and the Lord led him out. And so today, as we close, I, want, I, I know some of us are waiting, so I'm going to try this. Take stuff off your lap. We're going to pause. And we're going to wait. Uh, perhaps some of you, it's, it's waiting with your hands in your lap. Uh, but what's the thing that you're waiting for? What's the thing that you want that you don't have? The thing that you know God's called you to, but you don't have? The thing that, that you've been praying for, but you don't have it yet? You're waiting for it. What is that? And as uh, I'm, we're going we're gonna to do something that we usually don't do, close your eyes, bow your head, pray about it. What's that thing you're waiting for? A cure, 
peace, job, spouse, child, fill in the blank. You know what you're waiting for. And you know the difficulties that comes with it. The doubts that it creates. Can you name it? Can you picture it? As you're picturing it, invite God into the waiting. Because that's usually what we don't do. We try and handle it on our own. We try to white-knuckle it. We try to force it. We try to carry it on our own strength. But what would it look like if you said, God, meet me in the waiting? Not to fix it, although we might. But to sustain you. To bring you hope. Waiting is a direct attack on who God says you are. It's an attack on your identity. So as we wait, may we never forget our true calling. May we not forget our baptism. May we not forget who God says we are. You are loved. God is moving. We wait. The hope you want is found in the waiting. The joy you want is found in the waiting. The power to wait is found in the waiting. So, Lord, we pray the same thing that David prayed in Psalm 40. How long, how long must we wait? We're waiting patiently, but we still ask how long. Habakkuk, the same thing. How long will the evil go unpunished? How long do we have to put up with this? How long must we wait? Lord Isaiah says it this way. When you wait, you will rise up on the wings of eagles. You will run and not go tired. You will walk and not get faint. And so, God, we wait. Open-handedly, expectantly, expectantly, with hope and trust that though we can't see you, you are moving. We're not forgotten. We haven't done anything wrong. And in your timing, things will be perfect. And so God, bring us patience. Bring us strength. 
Let's remember your promises that they've never failed. And it's in your name we wait.